0: Chapter 9 Part 2 of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomcoe. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 9 Men of Affairs. Part 2 Let us turn for a moment to the career of another great fortune builder, the man who was perhaps the greatest freebooter the American financial world ever saw who made his money by destroying rather than building up and whose wealth finally killed him j gold let us see if we can get some sort of idea of the personality of this extraordinary man born in eighteen thirty six a farmer's boy with only such education as he could pick up he managed to find time to study surveying and for two or three years was engaged in making surveys of various new york counties while thus engaged he fell in with a wealthy and eccentric individual named zadok pratt who sent him to the western part of the state to select a site for a tannery he was soon doing a large lumbering business first with pratt and then in his own name but he sold out just before the panic of eighteen fifty seven and soon after entered upon that career of speculation in new york city which in the end made him the best hated man in america Picture the man, small, only five feet six inches in height, with sallow skin and jet black whiskers, his eyes dark and piercing, his whole personality, as one observer put it, reminiscent of the spider. His reputation was that of an unscrupulous and immoral rascal who would not hesitate to sacrifice his best friends, if need be. His war against Cornelius Vanderbilt for control of the Erie was one of his typical operations. A war which, when he saw he was losing, he won by issuing five million dollars worth of fraudulent stock. There was never any question about the criminality of this proceeding, and Gold was forced to flee to New Jersey, where he spent millions in corrupting courts and legislatures. Millions, not taken from his own pocket, but from the treasury of the Erie of which he had control he was ousted at last but not until he had added sixty-two million dollars to the indebtedness of the road of which amount it was asserted gold had pocketed twelve million dollars the culminating feature of his career was his attempt to corner gold which brought about the famous black friday panic of eighteen sixty nine The scheme one of the most daring ever attempted by any operator came near success Gold is said to have bribed the brother-in-law of President Grant and to have persuaded the President himself not to release any of the government supply of gold. He then succeeded in driving the price up to 162.5, when suddenly the bubble burst. Gold himself had been warned and succeeded in getting away with his immense profits, covering himself at the expense of his associates, an act of treachery unprecedented even in the stock market. These were only two of the remarkable operations which he engineered, and which need not be given in detail here. The net result was a fortune of some seventy million dollars, and a reputation for duplicity such as perhaps no man in America ever had before. It is only fair to Gould to say, however, that he accomplished merely what most stock gamblers would like to accomplish, if they could, and that, outside of finance, he seems to have been an estimable man. Faithful to his wife, devoted to his children, and passionately fond of flowers. He made no gifts of any consequence to charity during his life, nor did he make a single benevolent bequest in his will, but one of his children, Helen Miller Gold, has more than atoned for this by practically devoting her life and her fortune to charitable work. It is doubtful if there is a better-loved woman in America today than Helen Gold, who has shown so notably how a life may be consecrated to good works. The great marble palace which A.T. Stewart built on Broadway in New York City to house his business and which was, at the time, the greatest building in the world devoted to a retail business, is now occupied by another great merchant who, starting from a beginning even smaller than Stewart's, has built up a business many times as great, John Wanamaker. Whatever the growth of the country may be hereafter, will always remain one of America's most representative and most successful men of affairs, both representative and successful because his business has rested from the first on the principle of honest dealing of making satisfied customers, in a word, upon the altogether modern principle of your money back if you want it. John Wanamaker was born in Philadelphia in 1838, a poor boy with his way to make in the world. He received his education in the common schools, and at the age of fourteen, entered upon his business career as an errand boy in a bookstore. From that, he got a clerkship in a clothing store, and for some years acted as salesman until he could save enough money to start a little store of his own. This he was able to do in 1861, in partnership with a man named Nathan Brown, and ten years later he was sole owner of a prosperous and growing business. It was at about this time that an idea occurred to him which was destined to revolutionize the retail business of the larger cities of the country. The idea was simply this. In the great cities, most shoppers have to travel a considerable distance to get to the business center, and must there waste time and energy going from one store to another to make their purchases. Why not, then, combine all the representative retail businesses into one store, so that the shopper could make all purchases under a single roof, pay for them all at once, and have them all delivered at the same time? Moreover, why could not one great business be conducted more cheaply and so undersell the smaller ones, since a single executive staff would do for it rent? delivery cost, and a hundred other fixed charges would be reduced, to say nothing of the advantages of large buying and the advertising which every department would get from all the rest. The idea grew into a carefully formulated plan, and 1876 saw the start of the great Wanamaker department store, perhaps the most famous retail business in the world. Its tremendous success is an old story now, and it has found hundreds of imitators. Twenty years after the opening of the Philadelphia store, another was opened in New York, in the old Stewart Building, to which another building, four times as large, has recently been added. Wanamaker, from the first, firmly believed in P.T. Barnum's old adage that a satisfied customer is the best advertisement, and he made every effort to see that none left the Wanamaker stores unsatisfied. He also made it a rule that no visitors to his store should ever be urged to buy anything that every article of merchandise should be exactly as represented and that any purchase might be returned and the purchase money would be refunded without question as a result wanamaker got a reputation for fair dealing which proved his greatest asset one would think that the management of such a business would fully occupy any man but wanamaker found time for many public and benevolent interests he founded in eighteen fifty eight the bethany sunday school which has grown into perhaps the largest in the world, and of which he has always been superintendent. He has taken part in many movements for civic reform, and, from 1889 to 1893, was Postmaster General of the United States. He reorganized the service, set in motion the rural delivery system, the greatest single improvement in its service the department has ever made and tried to secure a postal telegraph a postal savings bank a parcels post and one-cent letter postage he was the first official to regard the service as a business pure and simple and if the reforms he suggested had been carried out the united states post office would now be a model for the world the greatest banker and financier in america at the present day is undoubtedly j pierpont morgan who however is known not so well for the millions he has accumulated as for the other millions he has spent in collecting rare objects of art until he has become the possessor of a collection surpassing any ever possessed by another private individual that much of this will one day be bequeathed by its owner to the public there can be little doubt j pierpont morgan is of a family of bankers his father junius spencer morgan was for many years a partner in the great london banking house of george peabody and company and on the retirement of mr peabody succeeded him as the head of the business there was never any doubt of the son's vocation born in eighteen thirty seven and carefully educated he entered the banking house of duncan sherman and company at the age of twenty and from that time rose steadily until he became the head of the greatest banking house in the country He has been largely concerned in the reorganization of railways and the consolidation of industrial properties, and the magnitude of some of his operations is fairly astounding. During the Cleveland administration, he floated a national bond issue of $62 million. He marketed the securities of the United States Steel Corporation with a capitalization of $1,100,000,000. He secured American subscriptions, aggregating $50 million for the British War Loan of 1901. He controls over 50,000 miles of railway, and his interests extend into practically every great financial enterprise in America. He has given large sums of money for public enterprises in New York City, among them a million and a half for a great lying-in hospital. He built the Columbia, which twice defeated the Shamrock, in the races for the America's Cup, and he has made many valuable gifts to the various museums and libraries of new york city the power he wields is enormous but he wields it wisely and legitimately winning the respect as well as the admiration of men the greatest work of american men of affairs during the past half-century has been the upbuilding and extension of the railroad system of the country The railroad mileage of the United States at the present time is over 325,000. The total cost of the railroad equipment of the country reaches $14 billion, and the yearly earnings average over 2.5 billions. They employ over a million and a half men, whose wages average $3 million a day, and, it may be added, they kill or injure nearly 90,000. But that is a detail. With this vast development of the railroad business, the names of some half-dozen men are so closely connected that the great systems of the country are generally known as the Hill Lines, the Harriman Lines, the Vanderbilt Lines, the Gold Lines, and so on. Of these men, we shall try to tell something briefly here. We have already related how Cornelius Vanderbilt secured control of the New York Central and Hudson River roads, and added to these until he had secured an entrance into Chicago and how his son william henry vanderbilt added to this system until it became and still remains one of the strongest in the country we have told too of jay gould's ideas of railroad management which seem to have been to get the most out of it for jay gould but when jay gould died he was caught as it were with thousands of miles of railroads on his hands he left four sons george gould edwin gould Howard Gould and Frank Gold, of whom George is the only one that really counts. But he, with a real genius for railroad building, has developed the gold lines into a great system stretching from Buffalo and Pittsburgh southwestward to Chicago, Omaha, Kansas City, Denver, Ogden, St. Louis, New Orleans, Galveston, and away out to El Paso. These lines have played a most important part in the development of the Great Southwest, and it is said that George Gould is already blazing a way to the Atlantic seaboard, as an outlet for the mighty freight traffic which his lines control. No man connected with railroad building in this country has had a more interesting or adventurous career than James J. Hill. Born on a little Canadian farm in 1838, descended from the hardy Scotch-Irish of whom we have spoken so often, his father died when he was fifteen years, and he was left to his own resources. He found work as a woodchopper, and one day, while he was chopping down a tree, a traveller stopped at the house to take dinner, hitching his horse to the gate. The boy noticed that it was tired and fagged, and carried it a bucket of water. This attention pleased the traveler, and, as he drove away, tossed the boy a Minnesota newspaper, remarking, "'Go out there, young man. That country needs youngsters of your spirit.' The boy read the paper, with its glowing accounts of the new country, and the next morning, walking to the tree he had been cutting, he hid it one last lick for luck, and announced, "'I've chopped my last tree.' That tree, it is said, bears today a great placard with the words, the last tree chopped by james j hill it was the last one for a day or two later the boy started for st paul he brought with him to the united states the lusty body frugal instincts and good principles of his scotch-irish ancestry and in addition to those a self-confidence and sureness of judgment destined to take him far He got employment as a shipping clerk in a steamboat office in St. Paul, and so took his first lessons in transportation problems. Pretty soon, he was agent for a steamboat line, then he established a fuel and transportation business on his own account, and managed it so well that by 1873 he had accumulated a fortune of a $100,000. There was in Minnesota at the time a little railroad called the St. Paul and Pacific, it started at st paul but it stopped after it had got only a few hundred miles toward the pacific hill decided to buy it the price was half a million so he tramped back to canada and persuaded the bank of montreal to let him have the four hundred thousand dollars he needed that was surely one of the most wonderful feats of a wonderful career the directors of the bank were severely criticised men laughed at his purchase pointing out that the road had never paid and prophesying that it never would pay. Yet that Jim Crow Road was the foundation of the great northern system, the Hill Line, stretching across Dakota and Montana to Puget Sound. Every man who went into the enterprise with Hill now owns his stock in it as a free gift, for in the intervening years the cost has been returned to him in the shape of dividends and bonuses it has never failed to pay regular dividends and has perhaps won public confidence more surely than any other in the country for james j hill had kept faith in the smallest detail with every man who ever entrusted a dollar to his hands the loyalty of the employees of the great northern had passed into a proverb once a hill man always a hill man and it is true he knows his road as few other men do before he bought the st paul and pacific he traveled over the route in an ox-cart studying not only the road but the people along the way there weren't many and the resources of the country before he extended his line to the pacific he went the whole distance on foot and horseback people laughed at him when he announced that he was going to extend his line to the pacific no line had ever been built across the continent without a great subsidy from the government to secure a subsidy was always the first step besides it was believed that the country through which the great northern was to extend would not even grow wheat and the new road was promptly dubbed hill's folly but in eighteen ninety three his line reached the pacific a few years later the owners of the great northern pacific were begging him to manage that road too, for he had created business for his road, a great market in the Orient to fill his westbound freight cars, and a great market in the eastern United States for fugitive sound lumber to fill his eastbound cars. For, remember, no railroad can make money unless, after it has hauled a loaded car from one end of the line to the other, it can find another load to put in that same car to haul back again he'll supply the business and his story is the wonderful story of the development of the great northwest which brings us to the napoleon of the railroad world e h harriman america has never seen another quite like him when the panic of nineteen o one was at its height and the financial world seemed trembling in ruins about his head he refused to break the corner as he might have done but sat watching the tape cool quiet and calculating, while men failed, banks tottered, and his own associates begged him to yield. For the ambition of this man knew no limitation. His kingdom must stretch from sea to sea and from the lakes to the gulf. His kingdom lay to the south of hills, for he ruled the Union Pacific, and between the two men there was ceaseless war. Physically and mentally they were as far apart as two men could be hill is a large man with massive head and brow and his eyes are steady and cool and brown his lips full and sensitive his whole personality bespeaking force and decision quite different was harriman a small ordinary-looking man with glasses and a scraggy moustache giving the impression of nervous force rather than of power an irritable man easily angered a fighter clear through but fighting sometimes when peace were wiser That was Harriman. Harriman was born at Hempstead, Long Island, the son of a clergyman with a large family and a small income. The boy was renowned chiefly for his daily fights and for his aversion to study. At the age of 14, he was put to work in a broker's office in Wall Street. At 18, he had a partnership. At 22, he bought a seat on the stock exchange and pretty soon entered the railroad field by getting control of the Illinois Central he at once inaugurated a new policy before that time the prevailing idea of railroad management was to run a road as cheaply as possible and pay big dividends harriman's idea was that the biggest dividends would be secured in the end by making a good road and he proceeded to carry the idea out by putting his road in the very pink of condition and it paid that was the beginning his great coup was the rebuilding of the union pacific a railroad with 7,500 miles of track, a giant crushed by its own weight. It had gone into a receivership in the Panic of 1893. For five years it stayed there, despite the utmost efforts of the giants of finance to lift it out. Then Harriman got possession of it and, taking an engine and a car, turned the train backward and, running in the daytime only, went over the road mile by mile. He decided that the road must be made a good road, and he told his executive committee that he needed for his immediate necessities one hundred millions of dollars. Well, he got the money, and he got good men and went to work. The result was soon apparent. Earnings grew, business increased, and the company's credit improved. Never before in the history of railroading had there been such daring rebuilding— The line was leveled down to a maximum grade of 41 feet to a mile, 247 feet were scaled off the top of the Great Divide, millions of cubic yards of dirt and stone were blasted out and moved, tunnels were drilled, and finally, when the Southern Pacific too was acquired, a trestle 23 miles long was built across Great Salt Lake through water thirty feet deep taking railroad trains farther from land than they had ever yet been run and shortening the road forty-four miles and the result the gross earnings have risen to over one hundred seventy million dollars a year and twenty-eight million dollars a year are distributed in dividends truly a transformation from the old water-logged road which harriman took over he had his reverses he attempted to get hold of the northern pacific but it slipped through his fingers The Burlington was cut out from under his guns, and so was the Rock Island. James J. Hill out-generaled him more than once, and he was never able to get back at Hill effectively. With Harriman, we shall close this chapter on men of affairs. Many others might have been noted. In fact, none of the great industries of the country has been built up except by inspired work. Armour and Cudahy and Swift made the packing business marshall field built up a business in chicago rivalling wanamakers august belmont william c whitney levi lighter robert golet pierre lorillard and a hundred others amassed great fortunes yet there was nothing in their career different to those of the men already considered in this chapter they had a genius for money-making each in some special field but beyond that they did few memorable things and so we need not pause longer over them here except to remark that it is in the main to such men as these that america owes her great material prosperity end of chapter 9 part 2 recording by william tomco